All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. As we said, it is such a privilege to be able to gather together as the church. God, help us to be reminded that there were not only times that we couldn't do that years ago, but there's family members all over the world, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that have to do it in secret, but they still do it. Because God, not only have you told us that it is good to do so, but when we are gathered together, we know that you meet with us. You speak to us. And so God, we ask you to do that now. God, we thank you for the singing, how it reminds us to focus our eyes on you. And now we get into the scripture. Help us to remember, God, all of this is worship. Not just singing to you, but submitting ourselves to you. And God, I thank you for this word today and the power that is in it as it talks about Jesus and what he did for us. God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, I pray that your spirit, God, would enable us to see and to know and to believe these words because they truly are, not only are they amazing, God, but they're life-giving. And then, God, I pray as always you'd help me to communicate it in a way that honors you, is helpful to us. And God, we ask you now to fill us with your spirit. Help us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 19. We finished chapter 18 last week, and I told you weeks ago that we are taking John 18 and 19 really kind of as a march to Easter to talk about the sacrifice of Christ. And then we'll get into John 20 actually on Easter that talks about the resurrection. And so in John chapter 19, we're going to get into now kind of really the gory details of what Jesus went through going to the cross. And just as a way of reminder, I just want to say this to you, parents of family members, that this is a great reminder of why it's amazing to check your kids into Rev Kids because they're going to learn about Jesus on their level. And today, just in the subject matter and the preceding or the following weeks, we're going to talk about just some of the gruesome and gory details that Christ went through on the cross because it's important for us to know that. And so we know that maybe sometimes you don't want your kids hearing about all those details yet. And so this is a great reminder that that's what, what Rev Kids is for. They learn about Jesus on their levels. And not that it's bad to have these conversations with your kids, but obviously you do it in age-appropriate ways. And, and the reason why I'm saying that is you're going to see very quickly that we're talking about something that we often sometimes can almost romanticize, but it because obviously Jesus went through it for us, but it is brutal. So again, if you have your Bible, open it up to John chapter 19. We're gonna just do the first seven verses in 19 today, but I'm gonna read first the first three, and then we'll stop and talk about it. Verse one of John 19, it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck, them with, struck him with their hands. Now, if you know anything about just world history, not particularly, not just church history, although they overlap in this instance, 
this part of world history is a particularly gruesome one because the Romans were experts in torture. And there's a lot of things that you can be experts in, and that's good to be you know, expert in a doctor, a lawyer, right? School and getting education, all that is good. And the goal of that, in fact, when you become a doctor, right, you take the Hippocratic Oath, and it is to do no harm. That is the oath that you're taking. Well, to be an expert in Roman torture means you're there to do harm. And let's just be honest, that's a weird thing to be an expert in, right? I mean, that's a sadistic thing to be an expert in. And when it says that they flogged him, we can just kind of move on past that so quickly and like, oh, well, that stinks for Jesus. They flog- I mean, flogging is not really a word that we use anymore. We're like, what is that? Where they dance with those big shoes? No, that's clogging. All right, that's a whole different thing. Flogging was a precise and very, very painful, very, very brutal torture. You know, over the last couple decades, just what's happened here in our country following 9-11, torture and methods that different governments use to extract information from people have become more prevalent. It's been in a lot of movies and a lot of just kind of popular culture things, and we've had serious and strong debates about the morality of that. But it's one thing, and I'm not speaking up for it, but it's one thing to do that to get information. It's another thing to do that just to do it. It's another thing just to do that because you want to inflict pain. And this this expert in torture and pain, they were so good at what they did, they knew how to bring bring a person to the point of death and then back off just a little so that they wish they had died, but they haven't yet. In fact, Most historians say there's three levels to Roman torture, the third being hanging on a cross and flogging being the first and second to where it builds up to a point where they weaken the person to die quickly because they're already so close to death. I mean, it's one thing to end someone's life, but to do it in such a way to inflict the most amount of pain on that person. I mean, that's sadistic. And that's what happened to Jesus. You have heard, I'm sure, because other gospels will give more graphic details of the cat of nine tails and how they would whip somebody and they would strip them down literally naked and then to their back, they would beat them. That is what flogging is. And it wasn't just that. They weren't just flogging Jesus. They were mocking Jesus. So much so that he claimed to have a kingdom. You know, the whole conversation that we talked about last week, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And so he didn't deny that, but talked about his kingdom. So now these Roman soldiers like, hey, we have an idea. Let's put a crown on him. But let's make this crown as painful as possible. So they twist together a crown of thorns and ram it down onto his head. And then after they flog him, you can imagine literally all the skin ripped off the back of him. Now they put a a purple robe around him because that signifies royalty. If you've ever had any kind of scratch or, you know, any kind of thorn, especially something that has exposed skin, you know you don't want something covering it. 
And so when we think about this, we need to understand just the sheer torture that Jesus went through. But there's another way that we also need to think about this, not just on a human level, but on what I'm just going to call a deeper theological level. Because there's something else going on here, and that's what I want us to see. There's something else going on here that these Roman soldiers unwittingly, unknowingly are playing a huge theological part in. And so to help you understand this, let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. It says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, what's that next word there? Thorns. If you knew, I'd like for you to call and respond every now and then. Let's try that again. What is that word? Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now, if you know anything about biblical history, when Adam and Eve were placed into the garden, right, everything was good. And I like the joke, it was good for two chapters. Well, then you got chapter three. We talked about this last week. The other kingdom, the evil kingdom, the prince of the power of the air comes along, lies to Eve. Eve then convinces Adam to go along with this. And then you have a result of cursing. Not cursing in language, but actual placing curses on. First, God curses the devil. Then he curses the woman. Then he curses the man. And in the curse, he tells the man, listen, here's what's going to bring forth from your decision. You're going to bring forth thorns. Now, I don't know how much you like being outside, but I love being outside. Love it. And I come by it naturally. Uh, I get it from my father. My father is an outdoors guy. In fact, when he first went to school in kindergarten, he tells this story affectionately. It's one of my funniest story, kind of family stories. My great, not my great, my grandmother, who to me was great. And so my awesome grandma, let me say it like that. His mother would drive him to school on the like first day of school. She drives him to school, goes home. She does this for like a little over a month. And then a month and a half, two months in, the school calls her and says, hey, where is John? She's like, what do you mean? John's my dad's name. Like, he hasn't been to school in two months. She says, what? I drop him off every day. Here's what this little rascal of a father that I have was doing. He would get into school. Literally, he would walk through the front door, out the back door, and run home. And he said he would beat my grandmother home. I said, Dad, what were you doing? He's like, I was hanging out in the creek behind the house all day till I knew it was time to be done with school. Then I would go home. And finally, what they figured out is they were putting him in a classroom with no windows, and he couldn't stand it. He loved being outside. And his teacher, he still remembers her name, figured that out, and they put him in a classroom with windows, and he started going to school. He just loves being outside. So again, I come by naturally. I love being outside. But one of the things that I hate about being outside is thorns. I can't stand it. I love being in the woods. I love hunting. I love riding four-wheelers. I, I want to be in the woods as much as I possibly can. But whenever I'm in the woods, and I don't know if you've, you know, how, again, how much you've been in there, but a lot of times what happens, you know, when trees grow up and it's a kind of a healthy thing, then they will a lot of times block the sunlight from everything else growing underneath it. And so you can have this like real pretty forest, but then they come in and cut down all the trees, then different kind of trees grow up. And then with that grows up all these thorns. 
And I'm not kidding, y'all. I'll be walking through the woods and I will do my best to stay away from thorns and it's like they come out and attack me. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, what the heck? Where did, I mean, it's like thorns are like mosquitoes. And that's the second thing that I hate about nature. I am thoroughly convinced that mosquitoes and thorns are a result of the fall. People, you know, get really freaked out and grossed out by roaches. I don't have a big problem with roaches. I'm not saying I love roaches, but here's what I am saying. I'm saying they run away from me and don't bite me. Mosquitoes don't run away from me and they attack me. I can't stand them. And that's how what I feel about like thorns. I'm looking forward to the new heaven and new earth with no thorns and no mosquitoes. Right, yeah, amen. Come on, somebody. But the reason why I'm bringing this up about thorns is because we see in Genesis 3 that thorns are a result of the curse from the choices that Adam and Eve made. And now what is brought forth in life is something that's painful, like thorns. Now, here's the deeper theological meaning. What was the crown made of that they put on Jesus's head? Thorns. That's significant. It's not just by happenstance. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's my first point. You might want to write this down. What we brought forth was put on him. What we brought forth was put on him. I showed you in Genesis 3.18, God said, thorns and thistles you will bring forth. And this is one of the hardest things when it comes to understanding life and the world and human existence because all of us understand, you don't have to be a Christian to understand that this world is not the way it was supposed to be. There's something deep within all of us. Again, even those who don't believe in a God at all have this deep sense something is wrong which is ironic because if something is wrong, then that means something was right before and something was created to be right, but yet they deny that somebody created something to be right. Which is why if you don't believe there's a God and this is all random happenstance, then you have no other meaning than just pain and thorns. But here's what we need to understand. I hear this, I've been pastoring over two decades now, and I hear this all the time from people. If God was such a good God, why did this happen? Why did this person die? Why did I get cancer? Why did I lose my job? Why did natural disasters happen? And here's what we need to understand. God unfairly gets the blame for all of that because he didn't bring it forth. We did. We brought it forth. And this is why life can be so utterly frustrating. Have you understood that yet? If you haven't, here's the good news. Just keep living and you will. It's utterly frustrating. Even the biggest blessings in your life turn into big burdens, right? Even one of the greatest blessings that we can have, like marriage turns into this painful process. And you can have these great moments with your spouse and then very quickly thorns show up. You're like, oh, it ruined the moment. Right? Another great blessing is children. Children are a blessing from the Lord, the Bible says. But can I say that those two great blessings in my life have brought me more burdens than anything else? 
When, you, when you're in a relationship, you're like, why do we keep having these frustrations? Because they're thorns. And here's what's even crazier. The reasons why there are thorns in your marriage is because you in it. Yeah, it was funny to some, right? Let me say it like this. You brought it forth. You brought it forth. I brought it forth. That's what Genesis 3, 18, we bring forth the pain. But this is what we need to understand. See, the Roman soldiers had no idea the biblical significance when they mockingly made up a crown of thorns and shoved it into his head. They didn't know that what we brought forth, they had just put on him. Let me give you another verse, Genesis, not Genesis, Galatians, different G, New Testament. Galatians 3, verse 13, listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's quoting Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23. You wanna read an amazing verse? Go read Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. It describes exactly what would happen to Jesus thousands of years before it actually happened. Even to the point where Jesus' body would be brought down off the cross before nightfall. It's amazing. But Paul's picking up on that verse and he's trying to show us the greater reality of what actually happened when Jesus took on that crown of thorns. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to see. Second point, his crown is carrying our curse to the cross. His crown, his crown of thorns is carrying what we brought forth which was curse, it was put on him, and that's what he's carrying. See, what I'm trying to get you to see, that Jesus wasn't just weighed down by the weight of the cross, which itself probably would have been at least 300 pounds, on a back that was just stripped of all of its skin, Jesus was carrying something weightier than just a physical cross, signified by the crown of thorns that was on his head. And it was the curse that we brought forth. You know, there's a phrase that says, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Imagine how heavy his head was that day. Not with just a physical crown of thorns, but a metaphysical, a metaphorical crown that's weighed down by the curse of all humanity. See, the crazy thing about what Jesus is going through here is not just that he's going to die a physical death. Yes, he will. But in his physical death, he is bringing to death a lot of other spiritual realities. Jesus was literally carrying our curse, what we brought forth, the thorns, the thistles, the frustrations, the pain, ultimately the death that we brought forth. He is carrying it. And this is why I'm stressing this. 
If we don't understand that the very thing that is cursing us, he carried it, guess what we will do? We will try to carry it. And one of the reasons why we live in such an anxious time is because we're weighed down by the weight of the curse of humanity. One of the saddest realities right now is simply the anxiousness and depression that exists in the younger generation. Because never before in human history have we had access to so much information, which literally just overwhelms our brain to the point where we can't carry it all. And you tap that on to the fact that then we always are bombarded with the fact that the world's gonna end in 10 years, then we are weighed down with the weight of the world. No wonder people are anxious. See, when it comes to the curse, there's only two things that we can do with it. We can carry it or we can cast it. This is why Peter says later in his writings, he says, cast all your anxieties. See, the reason why you and I are weighed down makes sense because we're not casting something and letting him carrying it. We're carrying it ourselves. We are literally carrying the curse that we brought forth. And what I'm trying to show you is the greater reality and the key to understanding not just the gospel, but the key to understanding how to have hope in your own life. Let's go back to John, John chapter 19, verse four and five. It says, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, mocking him as a king, carrying our curse. Pilate said to him, to them, behold the man. You want to know what I find so trippy about this? Pilate is evangelizing and he doesn't even know it. Pilate is telling people about Jesus and he doesn't even know it. And this is what trips me out about God. I say this often. In the Old Testament, God spoke through a donkey. Here he speaks through Pilate. And I joke about this all the time. He's still speaking through a donkey today. And I won't use the King James version that doesn't call it a donkey, calls it something else. God can use anybody to speak his message. And this is what I find out is crazy about Pilate. Pilate doesn't even realize the bros evangelizing. We would call it today proselytizing. And, and again, evangelism and telling people about Jesus has fallen on such hard times in our world to where now most people think it is actually morally wrong to tell somebody about Jesus. But here's probably one of the most morally bankrupt people in human history telling folk about Jesus. It's striking to me how Pilate has the same goal as John does in writing this gospel. John said in, in chapter 20, verse 31, we'll get to that after Easter, Lord willing. John in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, Jesus did many other things that are not written down in this book, but these are written down so that you might believe. Same idea as what Pilate's saying, so that you may know, and by believing, have life in his name. You see that? Pilate's saying, I want y'all to know 
This dude's got no guilt in him. Now, we talked last week, well, how in the world could Pilate judge he has no guilt if he doesn't know what truth is? How can I judge what is wrong if I don't know what is right? Which we already had that conversation. But let's just say even Pilate, according to his own twisted, subjective version of truth, could find no guilt in this guy. And he's telling the Jewish people, behold this man. Now, this word here, behold, is an interjection. And it's written as a commandment too. And the best way I can describe what an interjection is to you is when you're having a conversation with somebody and you're talking and instead of them listening to you, they're just waiting to interject. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know what I'm talking about, then I'm describing you. All right? I took a whole class, you know, communication is my undergrad uh, is what my undergrad degree is in. I took a whole semester class on listening, which is why my wife says I'm such an amazing listener. <laughs> I passed the class, <laughs> probably failing in life. Because here's what I think. See if you agree. Here's what I think. You know what would solve this problem? Jason talking more. That's what would solve this. And I know I'm not the only one. You know how I know that? Because I talk to a lot of y'all. See, interjection is when someone's not really listening. They're just waiting to interject, right? I mean, you, you kind of understand it in the word. Like, I'm interjecting something into this conversation. But here's what I want you to see. Pilate is so convinced that Jesus is innocent. He's not guilty. He doesn't deserve to die. He's interjecting to the people that are trying to uh, crucify this man saying, listen to me. Behold this guy. Look at this guy. And what's amazing to me is Pilate, not only is he evangelizing, he just gave arguably the greatest advice you could ever give another human being. The greatest advice. What is it? Behold the man. Look at him. Pay attention to him. See him. That's what this word behold means. And this is why, again, unknowingly, Pilate is keying in on a deeper theological truth here. And here's my last point. You might want to write this one down. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. When we think of the idea of beholding something, looking at something, gazing at something, the reason why we become like what it is we behold, because whatever we're beholding gets bigger. Whatever we focus on, gets larger. And the idea of mental focus, heart kind of focus, is, has huge psychological ramifications. The key to having hope is look at the right person. Behold the man. Let me give you a supporting text here. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, I have this on the screen, verses 12 through 18. Listen to what Paul says. Since we have such a hope. Now, here's what's crazy. Paul's about to describe the Jewish people and why they couldn't see Jesus. Why they couldn't accurately see Jesus. Look at this. He says, since we have this hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Because after Moses was in the presence of God, his face would literally uh, glow, not grow, glow. So he had to cover it. And then it says, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, and this still applies today, when they read, that's the Jewish people, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil's removed. You can see now. And what happens when we see? Here's the key text, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, watch this, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You wanna know why it's so important to listen to Pilate's words? Behold the man. Because whatever you behold gets bigger. Let me say it another way. The reason why you and I are so anxious and so depressed and we wrestle so much with the tragedies of life and the thorns that we have brought forth is because that's what we keep looking at. We keep focusing on it. We're obsessing over it. And when you obsess over it, it just grows larger. As I said earlier, what begins to happen is we can't get past what's been brought forth. And so we're carrying the weight of that curse on our heads. But when you turn to Christ, when you see Christ, that he carried it for you, now you can cast it on him. And when you cast it on him, you're transformed. See, here's the key. You and I keep looking to the wrong things and the wrong people to transform us. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. See, I love my wife, but my wife can't carry my curse. I love my kids, but they can't carry it. And everybody keeps looking for their soulmate thinking that someone else can actually carry their weight. Let me just tell you something. You want to know the number one way to crush your marriage and crush your kids? Ask them to carry your curse. They can't do it. That's another way of saying, say to them, make me happy. They'll crumble under the weight every time because they weren't designed, just like you weren't designed to carry the weight of that curse. This is why beholding the man Jesus 
is the best advice because if we look at him, if we keep looking at him, if we keep gazing at him, if we keep paying attention to him, guess what happens? We're actually transformed in the process. That word there, transformed, is metamorphosis. And I've said this to you before, but the Greek prefix meta means from outside of. Morpho means to change or transform. So here's what we need to understand. Transformation comes from outside of us as we look to someone else. You can't transform yourself. No one else can transform you because they can't carry the weight of your curse. There's only one who can transform you. And that's why Pilate says, behold the man. Look at him. And here's what's crazy. It says we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Here's what's crazy. The Bible says we were created in the image of God, right? But that image became marred, cursed by sin. Now we just bring forth thorns and fat cells. It's true, ain't it? And all of us are trying to reverse the curse by injections. Ain't gonna happen, y'all. I mean, you can be healthy and you should try to be healthy, but here's what you need to understand. You're always going to hit a limit and a lid. Because we keep looking to the wrong place, to the wrong person to do something for us that, that they can't do. But, but here's what I'm saying. We were created in the image of God, but then that image was marred. Here's what's crazy. Colossians 1 through 3 talks about Jesus and says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So here's what happened. The image of God, and, I, and I've did this before. You got the Father, you got the Son. Jesus is the image of the Father, but he's separate, right? And so that's the Trinity. So here's what happens. We quit looking to Jesus as the image and we start honing in on our own image by being obsessed by what we see in the mirror. And we wonder why no transformation's happening. Because what you see in that image has no power. Has no power to transform you. Because you're staring at the wrong image. See, you need to look at the image of God in Christ. And when you look at the image of God in Christ, guess what? He'll transform your image to be like his image. He'll transform your heart to be like his heart. He'll transform your mind to be like his mind when you behold him. So here's the thing. The key to transformation in your life that you want is beholding the right person. Looking at this man. But why is that? Because this isn't just an ordinary man. Let's go back to John 19, six through seven. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, don't miss that, they saw him, but there was a veil. So he, check this, they saw him, but they didn't see him. They saw him, but they didn't see him. Because here's what they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him again, for I find no guilt in him. This is the third time Pilate has said that. I think that's significant as well, because in Hebrew language, they didn't have adjectives the way we have, so they just would repeat things. I've said that before. So now three times he's saying, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. 
So Jesus is perfectly not guilty. But listen to what the Jews say in verse seven. The Jews answered him, we have a law. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, you mean the one that this guy wrote? We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Now listen to this, because he has made himself the son of God. See, this isn't just an ordinary man. This is the son of God. Now, we need to understand something. The Jewish people were not wrong in the sense that they're correct. The law says if anyone makes himself out to be God, they're insane. And they deserve to be punished. Not wrong in that. Let's, let's give them some credit. They were applying the law. But what they couldn't see, what they couldn't behold because the veil remained, is that this man isn't making himself to be anything. He's not making himself to be the son of God. He is the son of God. And herein lies, listen to me, church, herein lies the difference between Jesus and every other religion on the planet. The difference between Jesus and Christianity is Jesus wasn't trying to make himself bigger. He wasn't trying to make you behold him. He wasn't out there promoting himself. This isn't a man-made religion. And, and, I, and I said this a few weeks ago at our parent night in students when we were talking about the, the series in students. Lindsay and I were talking to them and I was talking about just how sexualized our culture has become. And I said, you know, you can always tell a man-made religion because the goal is always like some kind of sexual satisfaction. You know how you can know a man-made religion? In the end, in heaven, they get virgins. You know a man made that up, right? You get that, don't you? Because in a man's mind, that's heaven, y'all. And you can laugh all you want, right? But God made us to desire that because listen, when they think about heaven, all they can get to is the epic of physical pleasure. And we got all these other cults masquerading as Christianity that at their heart have the same wicked teaching. But you want to know one of the strongest reasons that I believe in Christianity? is the Bible says in heaven, we will not be in marriage or given to marriage. There is no sex in heaven. This is why it's crazy to make your identity based upon sexual things. It will not last forever. What makes Jesus Christ so appealing is he doesn't appeal to our physical appetites to lure us into the afterlife. Because he's better than that, y'all. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need to entice us with heaven being the place of ultimate sexual satisfaction because seeing God is the ultimate satisfaction. See, if we get heaven, we get God. <laughs> and, and here's how you know, Jesus wasn't like any other religious teacher who made himself big who 
started wars, who, who did all this stuff to exalt himself. This is why we don't have a shrine to Jesus. Because Jesus made himself small. And let me ask you a question. Which person is more emotionally healthy? The one who has to use others to make themselves big? Or the one who makes himself small by serving others? Which one is greatness? You know. And here's what I'm saying. When you behold this man, you're beholding the son of God in the flesh who made himself your curse. He served you. He went to the cross for you. This is what Philippians says. We should be like him who took the lowest form, death on a cross and was buried. You don't get any lower than six feet under. Your God did that. See, here's my question to you. One, tell me any man that would do that. Not for someone they love, but for someone who cursed them. See, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? But if you love those who curse you, now that's love. And the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, don't just tell me about a man who would do that. Tell me about a God. What other God of what other religion has at its core God becoming man and going to a cross and carrying on his head the curse of all mankind? There's not one. And the key to mine and your transformation is beholding that man. That man is the son of God. He didn't make himself to be anything. He just showed who he already was. And here's what makes Christianity in the gospel so amazing. Is in Genesis 3, God was so holy that he judged sin. But in John 3, God is so gracious that he took on the judgment of that sin. There's no one like this man. Because there's no God like this man. And if you're sick and tired of carrying the weight of the world on your head, the good news today is you can cast it on the one who nailed that curse to the cross and who rose again to give you life and hope. And here's what's even better. He will return one day and guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna make a new heaven and a new earth with no more thorns, no more death. He's going to reverse the curse. The garden's gonna turn into a city where the people of God can dwell with their God forevermore. 
Tell me a better story than that. Behold that and you'll be transformed. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the crown who took our curse. What we brought forth was put on him. And God, I pray right now for anybody in this room or watching that has never put their curse onto Jesus's crown and been forgiven. I pray right now they would cast that onto him by beholding this man. No one looking around or talking here as we close. If today you understand that there's no one like this man because no man has ever not only been the son of God, but actually proved it by coming back to life again. Because you can kill a man, but you can't kill God. And if you want to, for the first time, look at this man and be saved, then you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. You want to trust Jesus. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus in my place to carry my curse to the cross. And so I'm asking you to put my sin on him and give me his life. Save me, forgive me, and help me to keep looking at him so that I can be transformed to be more like him. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you're in one of our physical locations, Canton and Jasper, and you just prayed that with me, would you just simply lift up your hand? We got men and women gonna walk around. We got a Bible, some next steps. We wanna give that to you as our gift today. When they do, you can put that down. And then for those of us who've trusted in Christ, I pray today that you're reminded that if you've been carrying all your anxious thoughts, you've been carrying the weight of someone else's soul, you've been carrying the weight of bitterness or unforgiveness or whatever it is, I want you to hear me say that's killing you. You don't have to carry it because you can cast it. God is the only one who has the ability to carry that. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. So casting our cares upon him is not just something we do as a one-time event when we get saved. It's something that we do every day in the same way we behold him every day. We look at him every day. We're reminded of him every day. 
And by his spirit, he empowers us, he changes us, he transforms us as we look to him. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus. Who Hebrews 12 says to fix our eyes on. Because he is the author. He is the finisher. He is the perfecter of our faith. We can't change ourselves. Only you can as we look to you. So by your spirit, empower us. Give us the grace to keep looking at Jesus so that we can be transformed from one degree of glory to another as we cast our cares and anxieties upon him. Thank you. And God, I pray today we've been reminded to behold this man because there's no one like him. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, we ask all this. Amen.